Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. The title of the, the panel is Modern Journalism, Creative Curiosity and the Future of News. Um, the panel already assured me that you could break off any one of those bits and talk for an hour and a half on each, but we're not going to do that. Um, so just to introduce the panel to my f- further left, uh, Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson, or Edge as we like to know him, uh, because it's a bit shorter, uh, uh, who is the media editor of the Financial Times, now based here in New York uh, since about 2005? Two, uh, 2008. 2008, okay. Um, and then to uh, my immediate left is um, Indrani Singh, uh, Sen, who is uh, in the finest of all professions, which is teaching journalism students, uh, and she does it at CUNY. Um, so welcome, uh, Indrani. Then to my immediate left, I have um, Martin Nazurki, who is a 25, 25 years in the field as a journalist and has hopped the fence, as we like to say, and is now the spokesman for Banking Moon at the uh, UN, the uh, UN Secretary General. Next to him, we have Bob Guccione, Jr., who is uh, a great media entrepreneur, the founder and publisher of Spin, I think, which gave yeah. Rolling Stone a great fright, uh, and recent, sleepless nights. And a recent uh, purchaser of Discover right. magazine. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then on my far left, uh, we have Gabby Derbyshire, who is not, as you might note, Nick Denson. We've done much better than Nick Denson. We've actually we've got the person who actually really knows what goes on at Gorka and indeed runs it. And does everything, yeah. And does everything else, yes, as, as COO. Um, Nick's having a bit of difficulty with the passport office in London. So, um, <laughs> well, one hopes so. That would be part of the part of the future of news. You'll note that actually the work, the one prerequisite of being on this panel is, is, is actually to have a British accent, um, <laughs> even, even though we do it's have. True. It's true. It's true. Even our American yeah. citizen has a British accent. So I kind of wanted to, um, in, the, uh, in the unconference-like way of running this, I was foolishly polling the panel's opinions on what they wanted to kick off on. And they sort of agreed that, that one, of the, um, one of the areas to start with this is curiosity. And what does curiosity mean for journalism now, particularly when you see so much of it as we, as we like to talk about being done by algorithms and the idea of the sort of the, the journalism is almost kind of like the first profession which might reach singularity where humans and machines become one. Um, so people say curiosity is, the, is, is, is a good place to start. And in fact, Martin, you were one of the people who said curiosity was a good place to start. So, so, so in what way does this relate to the future of journalism and how we should be. Well, you, you dated me uh, rather by saying how long I'd worked uh, for Reuters when I started with Reuters in 1982. And, and I signed up, it was to have endless curiosity and to be passionate about that. But it was definitely not to have an opinion. We were not paid to have an opinion. And that was the case for the, all those years that I did work uh, for Reuters. And one of the chief subs on the desk in London always used to say when another piece of priceless uh, copy came in with some kind of uh, unsourced parenthetical opinion, just give us the facts, ma'am. And uh, that really is no longer the case. We, yes, we do still need the facts, but that's just not enough. We really do need to hear more uh, opinion. And that is what you see 
online is what you see in, in uh, print publications, I, that this kind of uh, crossover. What does that mean for you, the United Nations? It's challenging us in many ways, and colleagues of mine, I hope we can come back to it in a little, a little while, colleagues of mine have been meeting in Geneva in the past week, communications people from across the UN system trying to look at how we deal with challenges precisely like this. How do we deal with the, the, the individualistic approach to news, the, uh, the requirement uh, for more opinion, and how do we uh, map onto that the great stories we have to tell, the people we have to tell it, but in, in, uh, in a dispassionate way, quite, quite tricky. So, I mean, you know, it's, there's an awful lot of talk about how opinion now drives journalism, but is that actually people's experience of it? I mean, Andrew, you're not exactly massively opinionated in the news pages of the Financial Times, arguably. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I'd better be up here. Um, look, I think the... Um, uh, you know, if you step back and just look at the, what fills a newspaper now, you know, undoubtedly there is more, there is more comment, there is more uh, opinion. Um, and I, uh, I had the experience of picking up um, a 1987 copy of the Financial Times a few years ago, some anniversary of Black Monday or something. And, uh, you weren't just I, cleaning your desk. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Along with some dead bodies of former media editors uh, who never left. Um, but it was pretty turgid. You know, in the companies and markets section, uh, you know, from this era where we, where we romanticized the paper of record, you know, which is still a concept that, that a lot of people do romanticize, was, would frankly, you know, to modernize, look like regurgitated press releases and, uh, uh, and financial statements. So um, I think sweeping away some of that uh, the kind of base material that people now don't need to buy a pink newspaper for uh, you know, when they're on the 732 into Waterloo or into uh, Penn um, has been very good and replacing that with ideas has also been good but I think we all know there's a lot of um, empty opinion out there as well, there as well. a lot of just you know, people who like the sound of their own voice and I, I think what no, we've none been... of those are journalists no certainly not uh, no, a, lot of, a lot of them are but um, you know, I think what we've tried to do um, in recent years the FT is where we've had people cross the fence from news to, to commentary and so I, I will write uh, columns on the news page on the company's pages periodically for example um, it's reported opinion so it's you know as you see, we've always done with the Lex column. You, know, you do your work, you go through the numbers, uh, and you come out with your opinion at the end. And it's not that kind of, I woke up this morning in a bad mood and I feel this is stupid. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the, you know, I spent three hours going through the numbers or talking to the right people, and, um, and they came out with this opinion. So I, I think that's, um, uh, you know, that's, that's more the direction we're seeing a lot of people go in. Uh, you know, it's... It's pretty easy to see where the, you know, who's empty and who's actually got some uh, reporting behind them. But this is very, I mean, it, it, it's been very interesting coming from the UK to the US where uh, the, sort of the, 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 the sacred nature, particularly of print and the printed words, has always been this sort of idea of balance rather than neutrality. As I keep pointing out to them, they don't really have the BBC here, which they do enjoy being told a lot. Um, and they should put more government money into um, journalism. That also goes down very well. Um, <laughs> when you're teaching students writing and reporting now, how is, it, how is the tension played out between this idea, as, as, as Andrew was saying, uh, and Martin observing, that you know, if you're going to be a successful journalist now, you almost have to have some sort of... <coughs> personality 
Yeah, I think the, the word we use often is um, analysis. Um, so instead of, uh, you know, when I was in journalism school, the idea that a year out of journalism school, even while you were in journalism school, you would be writing analysis, it seemed absurd. But, I mean, as Andrew says, um, there's you know, there's no such thing as a first-day story in a newspaper anymore. By the time it hits the newspaper, people already know it. Um, so you need to add value. You need to figure out. You need to. You need to take readers the next step. Um, and the way uh, Alex talk about it is um, a theory. So, so what, instead of a, you know, who's right, who's wrong. I, you know, that's not for a, a news reporter to to say. But um, but I think the reader needs to know what's really going on here, beyond just what happened. Um, what's the real story here? Um, so you know I think it's this funny. It does skirt a line between um, straight news reporting and opinion writing. It's the line that I think uh, the New York Times is is trying to um, unpick a little bit more with their redesign of the the Week in Review section next week. Um, but but that but that sort of um, uh, it's 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 sort of a, it's a it's a more knowledgeable erudite voice I guess in the news pages rather than opinion, right? And that's what I think students are striving for, um, even from the very first stories that they're writing, you know. But does he understand the difference between sort of just it's, it's making that transition from is there even a transition? I mean, this is, you know, one for one for all the panel, which is is there a transition now just between being someone who writes and publishes context, opinion, etc., and, and actually being a journalist? I mean, apart from whether you get paid for it or not, is that that has to be a? I think one of the sources of areas of tension still here is. The motivation of the of the publisher, be that a, a digital publisher or a, or a traditional you know, newspaper or news organisation with a with a print past, um, and the motivation of the individual journalist. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of the financial motivation in journalism is now going towards building your own brand. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's having your own Twitter account, it's having columns under your byline, it's you know showing up at panels like this, uh, it's writing the book, it's getting the you know, huge film deal, you know, whatever it may be. But I think um, you know when you look at any news organisation now, I think a lot of the um, one of the biggest challenges uh, they face is how do you balance the Ambitions of the individuals in that organisation with the needs of the of the entity. That's, I mean, that's a great place to start with people who are publishers, who you presumably want to kind of beat this impulse to death with your shoes, don't you? And stop your journalists being individual brands, etc. And Gorka being the brand. How you? How would you deal with this as a publisher? Well, I take it first because you're, you're actually in in business. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was actually interesting when we started Gorka um, Media. Actually, the first site was Gizmodo, even though it's called Gorka Media, the first one was the tech title. And all the sites, to begin with, had just a sole editor. And you think about the founding editor of Gorka, Elizabeth uh, Spires. She had such a distinctive voice and was so intelligent in the way she wrote that you began to think that maybe the brand was the person. And there was definitely concern when we started that should any of our key editors leave, that maybe the brand would suffer. And what ends up happening over time, of course, is that as an operation gets bigger and you don't have a single editor, you have a team, the brand becomes bigger than the individual. 
But it's still the case that we have always been, Nick particularly is great at sort of spotting young unsung talent who are not necessarily already in established jobs in mainstream media, but have been diligently writing their blogs or whatever they do um, over the years. And you notice this talent and you bring them on board. And of course what happens is that they become famous in a small ecosystem. And they get excited and stars in their eyes because some big mainstream paper comes along and offers them more money and a better title and they think, oh, it's establishment and isn't it great? And what we find happens is that they often leave and they realize that being a small fish in a big pond with very sort of heavy strictures in the process of how the sausage is made is actually rather constraining and depressing. And they realize they'd much rather be a big fish in a small pond with a very passionate and engaged audience of readers and commenters who love their style and how they write and what they do. And many of our writers have actually gone elsewhere and come back. And you know, what that tells us is that, that the voice and the individuality is key to the success of these titles. I mean, there's very low barriers to entry to start a publication online, but there's extremely high barriers to success. And I think the thing that separates us from most online publications or mainstream newspapers is that we are very much about the conversation. Our commenters are absolutely intrinsic to our business. And to me, a great story does a couple of things. One, you know, the newspapers of the paper record, they tell you what I call the commodity facts, whether or not it's a crane fell off a building or, you know, somebody resigned or there was a case up in Albany. And then, as Indira said, you have to go behind the facts and figure out what the real story is. And great storytellers tell stories. They don't just say, this happened, then that happened. And it's the colour and the personality with which you do that that makes a great journalist. Well, I don't know. Is that actually true? Or is the... Um, is the, uh, the it seems to me that the more that you develop your personality through your journalism, the harder it becomes to exercise curiosity properly, doesn't it? Partly because... I don't know. No, I, I disagree, disagree with that. I disagree entirely. Okay, hey, cool. I, I definitely want to make a couple of comments. Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't own Discover anymore. I sold out, so I'm, I am unemployed. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, sorry to hear that. No, 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 I'm happy, delighted. <laughs> My most recent stint was I was teaching at the University of Mississippi. I was teaching journalism, actually. Excellent. Share some of the experiences you've had in Europe. Um, and I'd like to start by saying the first thing I told one of my students is now my assistant intern and she, she's here. Uh, I started by telling them, you're artists. I said, you've learned a lot while you've been here about journalism and rules and all that stuff. I want you to put it aside. Not forget it, put it aside. And I want you to be, remember and concentrate on being artists. I said, so because the power of what you will do will, will depend on your ability to make it evocative. I said, now, a writer who can turn a phrase that puts you there, that, that makes it visual, that makes it emotional, that's somebody who is going to be able to convey their message. Um, someone who is dry and uninspired will not be able to have that same effect. I said, now, the important thing is the integrity of the message must be honest. I said, don't make up details. I says, but make them powerful, make them dimensional. That was the first thing I taught. And, and I am more romantic than most businessmen, I think, and I probably to my great detriment, by the way, hence the unemployment part. Um, but I, I, as an editor, I'm an editor and publisher, which is itself romantic. I don't think there's two of us left in the world, you know. Uh, no one has that title anymore, editor and publisher. I think only Larry Burke from Outside Magazine, and maybe Hugh Hefner has kept it. But that's about it, and, and I keep it. Um, it's because... You know, I believe that uh, the business side protected the integrity of the editorial side if the same person controlled it. So I was, I was adamant about that at both Discover and uh, Gear and, and also Spin. 
But I used to send my writers out to just push them to go find the heart of something. I said, you know, um, go be curious. Curiosity is the, is the engine that drives civilization, by the way. I mean, we wouldn't have left the caves without curiosity. So I think we, we've lost a lot of that today. We flattened it. I think we flattened it with the ubiquitous media, the ubiquitous Twittering and, and, and Facebook, social media. I think flattens things to where someone's opinion who maybe has as many Facebook followers as a columnist for the Indianapolis Star, you know, it, it's not equal. And the reason it's not equal, the last point I'll make, if I may, yeah. is it's not equal because in the print world and most of not all the traditional media world, there is a competitiveness because there's a finite amount of space you can fill. So there's 50 people want to write for the Indianapolis Star, right? Only the best one gets to write that column. However, all 49 of the losers, the runners-up, can have their own blog. Right now, maybe that blog has as many listeners. Does that make more, it equal? Often, often more. Well, yeah. I wouldn't say more. If they're not that good, they probably don't have that many either. Oh. I mean, do you know what the average number of uh, readers of a blog is? Anybody? I think, it's, I think it's minus one, isn't it? Something. Yeah, but it's not quite <laughs> minus one. That would actually be a physical impossibility. No, it's two. Two people is the average number of readers for a blog. Which means Kevin, an awful lot of thought about rebranding the Gorka network as 49 losers. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I don't mean, no, except things like Gorka as real media. Uh, and, and can, I, they, can I jump in about how yeah. curiosity mm -hmm. is fueled by the conversation itself? So you start with a story that's factual and it's got some colour and the writer has given you their opinion about why. And then what we find happens so often is in the comments somebody else will say something and it will spark this incredibly intense debate. There was a story last week which was seemed like the most trivial story of all that may have looked like to most people filler. It was on Jezebel, in fact. And it was about a woman who behaved very badly on a train. And somebody had captured this with her cell phone, and she had been very insulting to the train conductor. And she was Indian, and the train conductor was African-American. And she had basically said, I'm so educated, don't, know, don't you know who I am? Because the train conductor had asked her to be quiet. And it wasn't the actual clip itself that became the interesting conversation and the curiosity, it was the 500 comments, some at essay length, about the questions of race in this country and how race all depends on relativity of class and whether it's to do with the color of your skin or the class that you are and the job and the education you have. This debate ranged, ranged so widely that it made the writer of the original piece, that was a sort of a, essentially a throwaway piece, it made them realize what the public's interested in, what curiosity triggers are there, and makes them come back and do a follow-up piece about race or something like that. So we're not driven by the sort of demand media, what's everyone searching for on Google, but we are driven by the curiosity of our readers who come back to us and say, this is what we're interested in. But it was a slightly different mm -hmm. point that I was the wondering point. about, Rin, which is, which is, yes, I, I completely take your point, though, again, um, seeding content and uh, aggregating conversation, that's a, that's a very interesting, is that, is that actually the future trajectory of effective journalism? It's part of it. But the, curi but, it. But the curiosity point, if you're developing a personality uh, and you become particularly associated with partic a particular viewpoint, it, it, isn't your kind of incentive for... Uh, discovering things which disagree with, you know, you don't, you, the number of journalists who often disagree with themselves is, I feel, far too low uh, in the public sphere. And I just wonder sometimes whether or not that's a, a, is a, is a sort of devil's advocate sort of prodding the, prodding the hornet's nesting. Is, is, is that a problem, this idea? There's, there's nothing wrong, is there, with, with actually having objectivity as, uh, as an ideal? No, I think you have to start with it. I think you have to start with objectivity. I had an interesting little experience years ago. I went to Kosovo to cover the war and got there the day it ended. So lucky me, I got right in, went in with NATO. And uh, I was there and I saw 
a lot of the first things, I found the first mass grave and I found the first rape room. It's great. It's on my room's tombstone. Found the first rape room in Kosovo, you know. But it was actually fascinating to do. And I turned out the New York Times reporter because I was doing a monthly. I had a monthly magazine gear. But when I came back, I wrote my article and uh, I was on a radio show in Los Angeles, um, one of the talk radio stations. And Jonathan Alter, who's a guy I respect and like, was then a Newsweek editor. He was on the phone. And he said to me at one point, Bob, Bob, he says, your story does not sound objective. I said, objective, man? Of course it's not. <laughs> it's there. I saw the stuff with my own eyes. What's to be obje- I went subjective. I asked objective questions. But when you find mass graves and, the, and there's one class of people put the other class of people in them, this is, I don't know how you stay objective. And I, and, and I mean that sincerely. I, and I, I taught this to my students, too. I said, have an opinion by all means, but have an educated one and an honest one. Be honest. You know, say what you honestly believe. I honestly believed a lot of atrocities were, were there. I saw the evidence. I actually saw the evidence. I was in that rape room, which, which stank of, of blood and bodily fluids. Um, and I wrote that. And, uh, you know, I saw the, the, the damage done to people's lives. Um, and it wasn't pretty, and I didn't pretend it was pretty, and I certainly didn't pretend it was balanced. Although I did say when the Albanians did re- retribution, I wrote that too. So I think there's a key thing. We can't, we're not static. We're not static as a species. Journalism isn't static as an art form. And it's on a bell curve rather than a flat line. There's qu- only, I think, quality journalism. I think that's what it's about. And if somebody writes that online, God bless them. If somebody writes in a newspaper or a magazine, God bless them. It's about quality, I think, and power, the power to change. You know, I like reading people like Liebling, who wrote effusive essays, flowery essays, but he changed the way people thought, thought of things. Uh, Martin, mm. what was just as a, when you were convening to um, decide how to deal with this changing ecosystem, what was kind of the end of your thought, thought experiment? So in other words, you know, when you're an organisation that, that's dealing with this and looking at journalism coming at you rather than pushing it out, uh, is this world of kind of individual opinion actually easier to deal with as an organisation? And obviously you're an organisation that only does good in the world, but there might be organisations out there that do evil. Do, how, how, how do you view it in terms of the effectiveness of journalism in telling untold stories? Well, given that many of the communicators working for the UN are former journalists themselves, seeing that onslaught of journalists coming towards you is pretty scary. So. Um, uh, what, what I think is, is really uh, the main problem, and it is a problem, it's a challenge, I know that's the right word, but I, it's, it is a problem, and that is we're not nimble enough. Uh, even if we are journalists who are used to, uh, by training and uh, even by inclination, uh, we know how to tell a story, uh, we know how to marshal facts, we know how to um, craft opinion if that's what's required. But uh, the key thing is that given the size of the organization, we're, we're just not fast enough off the ground. Uh, I, I watched with great interest and, and huge admiration the, um, John's uh, one.org, the, the update. Uh, the, the first uh, video clip, of course, is, is fascinating in itself, but the, the update, the, the app. Now, the UN has a couple of apps out there already. One is the, the Charter, and the other is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I didn't check how many people have signed up for that just yet, but um, <laughs> this, this can make a difference. Uh, it would take, for us to do something like that, uh, would, would take uh, too long. Um, that's really what was coming out of, of this discussion that took place in Geneva 
uh, I, I wasn't there, my colleagues were, and they briefed me on it, and, and that's, that's really one of the pushes. And just to, to conclude, if I, I may, on that particular point, it's not that we're pushing in a different direction, uh, ending poverty or fighting poverty, that's one of our uh, key aims, of course. Jeffrey Sachs is the advisor to the Secretary General on the Millennium Development Goals, which is all about um, cutting poverty in various uh, different ways of looking at it uh, by 2015. So we're all on the same side, but we need to be able to be more uh, nimble and, and uh, swift of foot, I think. I mean, that's it. You know, we'll, we'll maybe come back to the sort of the real-time um, issue in a minute and, and talk more about the future of news as opposed to the future of journalism because well, actually that's that, that you know that's an interesting question which is the future of news and the future of journalism the same thing i mean i think news is happening in, in a lot of different places and one is actually a great example of that um you know w w it's storytelling um, even if it's not no, in, a, in a news... That's advocacy, isn't it? It's advocacy, but I think that there's a... Um, I mean, it's not it's not just one, but, you know, you look, look at Kiva or Global Giving or, or the UN itself. Um, I mean, not to mention a million other organizations that are looking for ways to... Uh, I mean, it, it's it, it's framed in the advocacy movement, I think, under accountability. Usually, how do you how do you tell the stories to the donors? But those are it's it's a they're borrowing a lot from journalism in the telling of those um, of those stories, and they're looking for a kind of um, it, it's a you know it's, it's not journalism. I agree, but it's journalistic in its approach. That's how we inject ourselves, in a sense. How do we inject the great stories we have into the journalism, and um, just to give you one example of that, uh, UN Refugee Agency, World Food Program, they are in places where journalists would love to be, but they cannot get there. And we yeah. have the stories to tell. It's how do we do that in the yeah. most effective way? Uh, that's that's the big challenge for us. Can, can I, mean, I say what I think? Can uh, I say, just hold, hold on a second, um, Andrew. But that doesn't obviate the need for somebody to come in with fresh pair of eyes no, and sort of acting on behalf of the reader and mm -hmm. say, you know, what you think may be interesting or, you know, great in the field may not be what um, you know, other people thousands of miles away would think. So, I, uh, you know, I, d I don't think one replaces the other. I, I um, had a meeting recently with somebody who owns uh, one of the sort of digital newswire services that pumps out press releases that you know, people use to distribute their press releases. And, and their pitch to their clients is, we are creating news for you. We are creating something that will sit there and come up high up the rankings when people type your brand into a into a, a search engine bar. And that that to me is not news. That is that's an announcement. That's a press release. It's an advertisement. Yeah, it's spin at, at its worst, um, but it's um, it's an advertisement. You're right. Um, but the idea that that content you know will somehow replace um, reported con content, you know, content. Employing the skills that are in that are implied by the word journalism, yeah, um, and the curiosity, you know, just the but ability I, to I ask think, questions. I think, the, I think the issue. I think the issue is the one we're not talking about: the quality of the thinking behind the journalism. So I don't think it's a conflict between is it electronic, is it Gawker versus Discover or Spin. I don't think that's the issue. I really don't. I think it's the quality of the thinking of the journalists. And I've seen that deteriorate. I've seen it deteriorate in my magazines and, and, and in my, amongst my colleagues and amongst the things I read. And I've seen it um, not be present, frankly, in schools. Either I've talked at schools and been astonished by how little 
the lateral thinking I got back from students, or when I taught, I have to teach a very smart class, but I also was exposed to other classes where they weren't thinking. And I used to say to people, well, think, you're, you're detectives. Go out and detect. Don't take everybody at their face value. Ask questions that are, that are unpopular and be courageous because there are, if you're doing your job well, you're not going to be liked. And I see that, they just don't see it. You know, I don't see the, I mean, I had a, a case at Discover Magazine where my uh, writer came to me and said, well, I've Googled it and I can't find it. I said, well, you know, I mean, did you call anybody? Did you actually, like, call a research lab? And it was like, no, I could email them. No, how about you phone them, start with a phone call, and work on that. I mean, these are the old principles. I've seen an erosion, and I hope I'm not sounding like an old lunatic here, sandwich board guy, but I see an erosion of the principles of journalism. And I think that's the real issue. That's all right. The future is going to be on whether or not we educate more journalists to be bolder and more thoughtful and cleverer. But, but yeah, Gabby. I think maybe one distinction to make is we're talking about two different things. One is the craft and one is the business, yeah. right? So I don't think anybody disputes that the craft of journalism has a particular skill set and a particular honesty and a particular desire for and curiosity value. and value. And that, I think, will sustain throughout millennia. I mean, communication really? with humans. Yes, I do. I mean, I we, the business well, 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 we like to think it will. You know, all of us up here would like to think it does. But is that, re is that really the case? Well, maybe it won't look as, exactly, as a profession. Well, maybe it won't look exactly the way it does now, but it will still exist. I mean, I mean, once upon a time, journalism was a trade. It was a fairly hack trade, and it wasn't done and undertaken by people with fancy educations expecting to get big bylines and huge you know, paychecks and like retiring with their house in the Hamptons off a journalism career. I mean, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was not like that. And then you have some free agency the way you do in the sports world, and then suddenly journalists become stars. And you've got a whole phalanx of journalists who have a certain age right now who believe that they were in a profession that was going to see them through to retirement in a very cushy and professionally well-respected environment. That is simply no longer true. And the young kids coming up through school recognize that. They all know how to do multimedia. They all know how to do video, audio, you know, all those things. And they're willing to work very hard for a lot less money. And they have the skill set to do it quickly. And you won't get any journalism, journalist of a certain age in a certain environment who is even capable of doing that, let alone being willing to work that hard again, because they have grown up over many decades of learning that they're do right was after putting in their time they would get to, like anybody else in a business, get to retire the corner office, essentially, metaphorically. So we're talking differently about the, the culture and the craft versus the business. And if you're talking about the business of news, it is different from the craft of journalism. Mm. And the business of news is in serious trouble because mm. you cannot have 20 newspapers and 15 broadcast you know, camera crews and journalists all running out to the same spot to all report the same thing, to be first to say this happened. That is pointless and it's unsustainable. What is important is that once the commodity fact has been established, which can be done by a much smaller subset of people, which is why everyone's coming back in newsrooms and stuff, then the real journalism comes in, which is why did this happen? What is the mm. consequence of this happening? What are the ramifications? That's journalism. But that's, I mean, and as you say, that was a very interesting point, which says it's not actually tied to the business, and it's not necessarily why um, our, our students get into it. I mean, it's very striking. I don't know, kind yeah. of, you know, how, what your graduating class well, I mean, would go and do, but you know, that that it, there seems to have been a complete change of mindset in maybe the last two or three years in terms of people wanting to go out and do things by themselves. Absolutely, yeah, and I mean, I think that there's also been there's a lot 
uh, more ways that they can do that. But I mean, they're really they're idealistic, curious young people who who get into this, and they're people who have this kind of cult. You know, uh, Nina Plank was talking earlier about omnivorousness in the context of food. These are you know cultural omnivores, people who um, you know raised on a diet of kind of high and low culture and appreciate you know Beethoven and Biggie and um, and and can tell stories um, to an audience that that's, that that um, you know is used to um, switching uh, very nimbly between those different areas. And I mean, I think that that's a. I really admire um, young people, and I you know my, my friends from um, newspapers say, you know, why do you teach in journalism school? There's no jobs for them anymore. And I, I just that's I haven't seen that to just, be the yeah. case. You know, more and more yeah. people are coming out of this this program, and they're creating jobs. They're teaching us how to how to work in this new landscape. But I think we've all sort of the discussion so far has rather assumed that the business actually find out what happened is mm. no longer is is done for us. You know, and well, I I, I, don't I agree disagree with that. With that. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm not really. sure. Uh, I, I think yes, a lot of us are kind of rushing on. Uh, faster than we were uh, in our profession to the and what does it mean uh, and what do I think of it? Yeah. But you know, do you still see the same that level of curiosity among your students about no what really happened? You know, are they are they asking the third, fourth, fifth, twentieth question until they're really satisfied that they're getting to the facts? Because I I still yeah. think you know, the facts are uh, you know are pretty important and they're not as easy to come by as we might assume. And they're becoming yeah. obscured. They're becoming obscured by the people who have guessed the currents of culture and the profession of journalism and media. And they're people like yourself sometimes, you know, who you say you're offering stories. Now, you're, you're on the side of angels. You're offering good stories. But when it's Dow Chemical driving it or when it's a pharma company driving the, the reporting on AIDS, you know, we had an AIDS column in Spin for 10 years and we were up against these guys all the time. We were finding out things that were just not true that were being pushed out and accepted as the orthodox opinion. You know, I mean, I, I just think it has to come down to people asking really good questions and having the courage to stick in there. Wouldn't you agree? It works the other way around as well. It works the other way around as well. That now, because you have so many individualistic uh, bloggers and, and uh, commentators, they can very quickly propagate what they perceived to be reality or mm -hmm. the truth yeah. and, they can, change and, the and uh, they can change the reality and the truth by, by doing that and that's very difficult for an organization like the United Nations uh, to, to push back against because uh, we, we, are, we mm -hmm. are, yes we're all individuals but we, we are working for, for a, a large organization which is, as you said, doing good things. Mm -hmm. Trying to push back against that is really very tricky, really very tricky. How do you do it? Uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes less successfully. For example, um, on uh, the Middle East, uh, on what's happened in, in Sudan, we have good stories to tell, but there are also <laughs> challenges. Uh, things have, have unraveled, as we've seen just in the last uh, month or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we are right there in, in the middle. We have a, a lot of work uh, to do. Yet, out there, there can be stories. There was one today... Uh, the saying that in, in Darfur, uh, separate obviously from uh, South Kordofan and Abyei in Darfur, that uh, WFP had not been delivering food to a camp which uh, uh, had received food up until now. 
It's just absolutely not true at all. <laughs> not true at all. But uh, it's out there. And to try to, to, to put the lid back on that again, uh, we hard. have to work overtime to do that. And it's, that's, that's our job to do it. But uh, I think that that's, that's another challenge that emerged in Geneva for us. Well, the speed of—I mean, the speed at which the hive mind works is is yeah. is is is, qu is is quick. And actually, one of the problems with package media, uh, and you know, the, the places like uh, the FT, fine newspaper, um, but, but but nevertheless, it's 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 you know, one of it. A lot of its mechanism is tied to a publication schedule, which is about which was really sort of you know dictated by an industrial process. And news, you know, news is now news has always been happening. Uh, all the time in real time. It's just that people haven't been able to see it. So now it's not just the news, but it's the reaction and it's the analysis and it's the context which actually has to be assembled around those yeah. pieces of kind of distributed reporting, uh, which is sort of, you know, again, that's kind of, that's really difficult, isn't it? That's a well, first of all, I'd say that the FT is a fine news organisation. Uh, I mean, I, I care a lot more <laughs> about the news than the, newspaper, than the paper. Of course. Uh, it's, you know, it's been many years since the FT defined itself as a newspaper. It, it's, it's a news organisation. We integrated print and online six, seven years ago, whenever it was. Um, and we are all you know, highly motivated to break news online because we are competing with, you know, everybody from Gabby at Gawker to Bloomberg to, um, you know, other news brands, established news brands, websites to every um, every tweet and Facebook update comes at us. Um, but I, uh, you know, it, we still have demand um, out there for an audience that likes to sit down once a day, mm. maybe on the you know at the breakfast table on the train home or whatever, and just think a little deeper um, about what actually happened yesterday. And it, it's it's counterintuitive um, that sense of. Okay, let's stop the clock. What happened yesterday? Um, and I, I have, you know, I spend far more hours than I would like to think about, you know, on my BlackBerry checking my Twitter feed. But there are still times when I'll sort of, I'll come home after, you know, an afternoon in the park or and think, what actually happened today? And I will check the homepage of, you know, of, of FT.com or NewYorkTimes.com, The Guardian, whatever, just to get a sense of, okay, what's, you know. Where is it? What was the big story, and what was what was the quirky one, and what was the one I sh that's important, but I wouldn't have you know, wouldn't have known it. It's not quite a splash. And so there's something about, and it's amazing how much that that old print layout has actually translated into the um, uh, digital world. So I don't, uh, you know, I don't see a, a total um, erasing of one by the other. I think on on, on that note, Andrani said the diet of news, whatever. And so I think about. There's a diet of communication information that one takes in. And if at one extreme you've got bakers who take very specific ingredients, put them in the oven and bake a cake, that's like the New Yorker pieces that take six months to research. And you sit down and you eat your slices of cake one at a time, slowly over a whole weekend. Um, and then you've got the stir fry where you've got a few base ingredients, you throw it in, a couple of other people come along and add information, some spices and all the rest of it. Well, no one wants to or can survive in a diet of cake the entire time, and no one wants to or can survive in a diet of stir-fry. And a healthy communication information diet has the range. So the pieces that might be the small off-the-cuff pieces that are quite short that you read 
in your 15-minute break between meetings because you just need to go online and have a break from the mind work that you're doing, through to the longer pieces you might read at your lunch break, to the long-form pieces that you go home and read in your leisure time at night or at the weekends. That mixture, I think, is entirely natural, and I think people seem to feel that one form is somehow better than another, and therefore there isn't room for all of it. Well, they, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're right. All of those layers have value, and timeliness is an incredible value if you're waiting for a hurricane to, you know, hit your house. Uh, you don't want to hit. You, you don't want to wait for somebody to tell you what the weather system is doing. You actually want want, want to know. So, so you're right about. You're absolutely right about that. But, but the kind of the first draft of hi history, of course, you know, traditionally it was, you know, a, a business. It was an organised profession that, that did that for most people, and that's now not true. And the interesting sort of journalistic aspect of this is whether it's the instruments of a financial market which, ra which operate with such speed and complexity owing to digitization, or whether it's the spread of social messages about um, uprisings in the Middle East. You know, that, that actually human activity now is able to, or you know, that activity moves faster than the, 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 than the journalistic process. I think part of it is just the need to weave those fragments into a narrative, you know, and it, mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter where that narrative appears, what form factor it's on, you know, an iPad or a piece of paper or a, or a screen um, at your desk, but um, I think the, the, there's something about the discipline of a deadline, um, and it may be nine in the morning, maybe you know, nine at night, that forces you to sit down and think, well, what do, what do all those things I've seen in the last mm -hmm. few hours mean? Um, and that, that may be why we've seen the survive, seen the form of the news story actually survive as long as it has. I don't think we can. We can't live on data alone. Sorry? We cannot live on data alone as a species. Neurologically, biologically, chemically, we cannot respond to merely data. I think we form our impressions, and probably have done since the earliest you know, time of man, um, by narrative. I think we need narrative. We need dimension. You know, we, we, each of us sends sonar out into the world at all times and ping it back. Oh, that's where I am. And I think narrative does that for us. Data doesn't. You know, I read the Financial Times, and I don't read the business stories very much. I read all of the arts and culture. See, that's the magnet that drew me into the paper, and then I spread outwards, and as much time as I can spend reading it, uh, and it'll oscillate, I will then read business stories. But I go for the book reviews and the arts and the culture and the food and the wine because that has appealed to me. That narrative has appealed to me. Um, and I think that's, I think I come back to, and I'm, I'm Johnny Wonder here, it's all about the quality of... The, the content, whatever form it comes in, doesn't matter. That it's the you quality. Like the style, because you're reading the wine and book reviews of the financial. Well, I like the intelligence of it. That's or something, and so right. you are choosing a particular style. Yeah, the individuality uh, of the writers. Well, there's just one second. Yeah, I totally agree, but I think that there's also there is a there is a bit of a danger to this this kind of rush to um, to analysis. I mean, I agree with what Andrew said earlier mm -hmm. that. Um, the, the kind of need to immediately add analysis and context to every story, and I think a good example of that, and uh, the, you know, there's a big difference between a deadline at nine o'clock and a deadline at six p.m. that we used to always have at newspapers. But with the Gabrielle Giffords story, um, when that broke, I mean, there were there were some big factual errors, like you know, even even the New York Times briefly reported that she died. Mm -hmm. But I think that there was also a kind of rush to add uh, analysis and context to that story when we didn't really know what the context was. Mm -hmm. And it immediately became a part of the narrative about Sarah Palin and Tea Party, when in fact, you know, 
there may have been some element of that, but it was a little bit more. The comp, it was a more complicated kind of mental health story in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Right, absolutely. And and you know, we all, including you know, the New York Times, everyone, everyone sort of jumped immediately to give that story a context, which turned out to be not quite right. But is it, but in the context Good of um, you know Gabby's point that all sort of you know all news is conversation is something that we hear, which is you know. And can only be partially true because a lot of news is just something that happens and then you all talk about it. But, you know, news unfolds. The reporting of news unfolds like a conversation. So some bits of it you may change your mind on halfway through. Um, and, it, you know, so sort of trying to teach or have some idea of finished perfection, is, 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 that, is that kind of done as a, as, a, as a journalistic discipline? Who are you asking? Everybody. <laughs> um, you well, wanted a free flow, can't you? Um, no, what do you think? Is it, is it done? When, when, you know, when the printing press came out, the only people who had access to disseminate information were the people who owned the presses, and they could say whatever they liked, and you had to absorb what they told you. And Speaker's Corners popped up around the world, maybe only in Britain, but Speaker's Corners allowed people to stand up and pontificate freely about the things that were important to them and to be opinionated. And, uh, you know, media's evolved over generations, decades, whatever, but it's always been essentially someone telling a story and then a recipient of that narrative responding to it. Mm -hmm. And either you respond with an extremely strong opinion that you disagree with the analysis, or you simply say, no, it didn't happen. And there are plenty of people who deny the Holocaust ever happened, or whatever it might be. You can deny a fact, but essentially what you're doing is you're hearing a fact, and then you are yourself as a reader forming an opinion about what that fact means to you and what consequences it has for your life. And so in that respect, there's, there's absolutely room for the digging out and the researching and the finding of the fact, and you cannot live without that function. But the, the news media has evolved to be a conversation about what does this mean for me in my life? Otherwise, why would you want to know it, read about it, or be entertained by it? It's usually because it has some way of feeding back to you a feeling you have about what you're hearing. And that's why some people tend to read certain things and others read other things, because it's about their subjective interest in the world mm -hmm. and how they relate to the world. So I think that it's inevitable that the way in which we do it may change and how we display it or how we research it and what the cycle is. But the fundamental end point of what is this communication doing, I don't think that ever changes. Yeah. It's starting a conversation and making you figure out how you respond to the world around you. Um, I spot that there are a couple of journalists who are clearly thinking um, and uh, working to a slower deadline um, than real time in the, in, the, in the audience. So it might be a good time to go there because we're, uh, you know, it's a very old media format uh, talking about ourselves. So if you, if, you, if, you, if you identify and ask, then um, with your, your hands up down. Uh, if we go, if we can go uh, maybe back first because we can get the microphone there quicker and then down here. It's a fascinating panel. Thank you all so much. Um, I just wondered, I don't, maybe I'm being, uh, well, how can we talk about the future of news or the future of journalism without talking about how we fund it and how people are going to be paying for the quality of the journalism that Bob is talking about and I think that everyone in this room cares about and cares about the future of, regardless of how that's delivered and through what organisation and whether it's that, whatever the mixed diet elements are. And I just wondered if we could have a, a quick conversation or from, from all of you perhaps or from anyone who particularly wants to talk about it, about how you fund that in this day and I think age. it's a great point. May I jump in first? I think it's a great, great point. Um, I think underneath that, we have to re-establish the sense of value 
Um, because when people do think that a tweet is as valuable as a New York Times reporter or a BBC reporter, then that value is diminished greatly, and, and evidence is there. Somebody tweeting under the bed in Mumbai, I'm under the bed, is not helping us understand who the attackers are, where they came from, who financed them, or what it means to the world at that moment. It took reporters to ask lots of questions. The bin Laden thing, you know, it took reporters to find out who helped us and who didn't help us. Uh, where we stand with Pakistan has real, real world impact. So we have to value that. I come, I come from that point every time, and I think that's very important. We have to value the quality. And then the finance it. Yeah. And I'm a financer. I mean, I, I, do the, I have to think of these things because I, I, I tend to want to finance things that maybe are now too romantic. The times have changed. I have to be more aware of the commercial realities of the marketplace. But I do think that if one really truly believes in the value of one's content and product, um, then you will be able to sell it. And it takes a bit of selling, but I think people will respond to that quality in greater numbers than will be responsive to the diffuse lack of quality. So yeah, I even the Times, which is the kind of the great paper of records, still well, to that question, has, its, its numbers have dropped off so drastically yeah. since Murdoch put it behind a paywall. Now, that may well still be the, the model that has to prevail in the future. Um, but Yeah, sorry, Gabby, because you, you, do you, yeah, do you make money? Uh, um, So do you see a future where basically, the, say for example in Britain, the BBC is the 
kind of provider of that news, of that commodity fact, again and again and again, with whatever else the BBC wants to do around that. And then everyone else who provides, you know, it's essentially journalists are their own free agents because they... Uh, you know, but people will curate what they want, essentially, from all over the web. Because at the moment, you have a situation where, you know, no one basically will read the Times anymore unless they're subscribing anyway. This is the Times of London I'm talking about. But, you know, they want to read their columnists from the FT, their TV reviews from The Guardian, their food drink writing from somewhere, you know, and will just curate their own. At the moment, they can do that basically for free. Can, can, I, just get, can I just get Andrew in here? Because yeah. he's, this is his, he does this point. for a living. You know, I've, I've written an awful lot of, uh, you know, obituaries in my time for for newspapers and certainly so two three years ago I was uh, you know, doing one every few weeks but I'm actually rather optimistic about this and may, maybe I'm just a journalist with a job but um, uh, um, I, you know, I think it's sooner or later in any discussion about newspaper, news, news business models uh, somebody comes out with a quote uh, information wants to be free so I'm going to come out with it uh, just to save everybody else but yeah the full quote is goes on to say but information also wants to be expensive. You know, it's a quote about the tension there. You know, I, what I would add to that is information wants to be and needs to be valuable. Um, and I don't Absolutely. really care. I don't think any of us you know, should worry about being the one-stop shop um, where you get your TV reviews and your analysis of the Icelandic banking uh, sector. Um, you know, we've all actually been freed from that paper of record idea. Um, but... You know, that's liberated us to focus on what can we do exclusively well that's better than the BBC, better than the Times, better than Gorka. And you know, I've read plenty of editorials in the Times over the years over the sh about the shortcomings of the BBC. So you know, yeah, I, it surprises me if there's nothing they can do to distinguish them, themselves from the BBC. But uh, that would be you know, my analysis of what they need to do. The one, um, one sort of cautionary note, I'd uh, finish on just relating to the topic of this debate is um, if we all retreat behi behind very hard paywalls um, and into uh, you know, ghettos and silos and niches where we're only speaking to the people who care about Icelandic banking and not to the people who care about Swedish banking, um, I think there is a danger. I think you lose that that mass, and you lose, lose that serendipity of opening the FT for the, mm -hmm. the theatre critic and then finding something you didn't expect to find interesting about Icelandic ban banking. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's you know, it, the model it, it's, I want to get, get to the other question, but it's also worth saying, I think, uh, that it's a very um, European-American debate. It's sort of interesting when you meet journalists from other parts of the world where actually the freedom of the press is, the, is, is key and new. And in fact, somebody said to me whose husband had been um, assassinated by the government for running uh, editorials that they didn't like. She said, if my journalism makes money, I'm doing something wrong. And I think that, you know, sorry, this is sort of you know, a bit of a downer, but actually kind of the, the, it's interesting because we're all very, the, this is a very industrialised debate we have about journalism. It's not really about core purpose. In some ways, the business model is, is as you say, important, but it's not, it's not the main thing. So, so yeah, one here and then. I was going to say that, first of all, I'm very depressed because I thought I was getting close to my corner office, Gabby, and now you tell me that <laughs> after 25 years of reporting, I'm not going to get one. Um, uh, no, I just wanted to, I, this is uh, just to stress the question of money, is that, you know, we were talking earlier this afternoon in the session about uh, sort of the tendency towards less reporting of fact and uncovering of facts and more uh, opinion, advocacy, and good writing. 
And my experience is that, you know, I've been with the same paper for 25 years reporting, is that over the years, um, uh, the paper has fallen into the trap, I think, of, of uh, there, are just, there are less resources for actual journalism, and it's cheaper to have somebody who has a good turn of phrase to rewrite that piece they found on Google. Uh, and I find myself as a writer or reporter in that trap almost every single day of the week. Do I spend the few hours that I have before deadline at 1 o'clock in New York writing a well-written piece, or do I spend it picking up the phone? And my editors in London discovered some years ago that they can produce what looks like a relatively convincing newspaper by having me do the former and not the latter. And I think that's a very insidious thing that's set in in journalism. That it, totally it comes comes down to money, and it's cheaper to have people pontificate than it is to have people go to Darfur and find out what's actually I, happening. I totally agree, but two things. One, to say it's an insidious thing in journalism, you know, it may be unfortunate, but it's also reality, and you can't avoid reality. So then the question becomes. Oh, but you can fight it. You, you can fight it. Take your single-handed fight and your millions and let's, you know, see how you do it. But the point is, we're, we're living in an economy where everything has been demeaned in terms of value, you know. Oh, I will fight Kids that. in China making electronics that you can buy for peanuts. I mean, the whole world is in a sort of fundamental crisis of value, but that's a different yeah, issue. Yeah, that's so, a very different thing between so, electronics so, and news. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that, um, is that it's not that there has to be less reporting. I never said that. I absolutely believe that there has to be more reporting. Uh, basic reporting. I'm just saying there has to be less duplicative reporting. Yeah. You can't have every institution competing to be first with the fact. It's better if fewer people do that. And as Andrew says, you focus on the niche subject that you report on and analyze another expert in and do really well and don't spend your resources trying to be first with the story. The, and the interest of journalism is to be, is to be sustainable and paid. Uh, the interest of the user is to get as much information for nothing as quickly as possible, which is... You know, and, That's and, not the and, entire dynamic, though. It's not the entire dynamic, no, but, but, but there is, I mean, it goes back to Gabby's point about is, is, is the BBC a very... I think this gentleman has made a great and, point, though. Um, he, he, this gentleman's talking about the cynicism of the media. Yeah. Now, I remember writing in Spin 20-something years ago that CBS had cancelled their uh, Foreign Affairs Bureau, and they were relying on local reporters. And I wrote things, That's ridiculous. How do we know that they're telling the truth? And now the cynicism is, is, is okay. dissolved I, I, into this. I, um, well, I think I, that's a very good point, sir. I'm glad you brought it up. You're cynical. Uh, You're very romantic. Uh, can I come to... Um, I, I am romantic. Rosie looks like she might Except inspire. <laughs> well, I just want to say, very quickly, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I've written for most of the national broadsheets in Britain and key magazines. I have never been asked by an editor. And, you know, I'm, doing, I'm not saying... I'm not some person looking back 20 years ago. This is this week. Editors are not saying, please rewrite a press release. They are absolutely not. They are Good, saying, yeah. pick up the phone. You know, I've worked in television journalism, radio journalism, newspaper journalism. Newspaper journalism has a, has a benefit over TV because you don't actually have to physically go to the person's house or the, where the bomb is. You can do it from the desk. But every single editor I've ever worked for will not accept a, a, a rewritten press release or a rewritten blurb from Google, and they can spot it a mile, and they always say, pick up the phone. So, you know, please don't let's start hanging out the funeral garb just yet for journalists. Okay, the questions are kind of increasing as we go on rather than diminishing. Yeah, this, is not, this is not what I planned at all. Um, uh, 
Alex, you've got a very loud voice. You could always shout or wait for a microphone. Oh, thank you, Emily. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think just a last question. I think there is a, there is a quite an important space between you know um, uh, rewriting press releases and 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 sort of at the other end, you know, the, doing the job. I mean, one of the jobs of journalists, and I, it, it seems to me, is uh, not the only job, but one of the most important jobs is to make powerful people sleep less easily in their beds at night or you know as I think it, I can remember who said it I think it was Hearst who said you know news is what someone somewhere wants to suppress and everything else is advertising and I, I suppose my question for all of the panel really is, we, is where does the fourth state uh, sit in all this what, what, what about the, you know the, I mean are we in this I mean let's assume let's take you know Andrew's optimistic view that there may be a way of actually funding this stuff in the future but what is it we're funding? And you know, does the whole uh, socialization of news make it more or less likely that journalists, uh, news organizations uh, of any size, uh, um, are able to hold uh, powerful people to account? Is, it more, is that going to be more or less likely? Or to put it another way, you know, how would Watergate have played out in this uh, particular uh, media? I'm fairly sure Deep Throat would not have remained anonymous for 30 years. Yes. That's, the, that's, that's, the first, that's the first one. But um, Martin, do you, want, do you want to take that one? Because this, yeah. this goes back to you know, more or less likely to hold you to account if something terrible happens at the UN that you want to cover up. That we will, yeah. Um, there, are two, there are two points here. One, one is, just to come back to the point uh, that you made about... Uh, and, no, I beg your pardon. You made about uh, money travel money to cover stories we would really love to have journalists accompany the secretary general when he visits a refugee camp in Darfur or when he is traveling in Nigeria to talk about women's and children's health and so on not just talk about it, but go there see it and help to, to, to raise the profile really really difficult and even when we're going to places where journalists would otherwise not be able to, to go very difficult now to, to get them to, 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 to join us to, simply because they, they don't have the funding or they don't even have the bureau close at hand. So that's the first thing. The, the, the second is holding to account. We believe that particularly the rise of, of, uh, of, of blogging, of uh, individuals really putting a sharp focus not just on us but on other organizations, we believe that's really healthy and it's important. And it's not something that we would want to see change. Maybe some of the tone is too compulsive, too obsessive, and, and not written with the kind of clarity that would really help them too. But it's, it's healthy, and uh, we believe that accountability for taxpayers' money, which is what we're talking about, is, is absolutely right. So, but, 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 do you, so, but do you feel that's just back to the question? Is it more? Is it more likely? You seem to be saying it is more likely that people will be held to account because you have, you know, a, a multiplicity of people with a vested interest in finding out whether this is right, not just journalists uh, um, who have publishing platforms. No, I think I think that it is already demonstrably the case that uh, we are now facing many more questions every day thanks to, to the, the rise of other media forms. Uh, I'm not saying whether the, the accuracy is, is there, it is not, but it, it means that we have to, to respond far more than we did in the past. 
And I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's extremely necessary when you have an organization of, of that complexity, which is the, the UN, doing good work, but with taxpayers' money. Uh, it's, it's right that, that people should be able to, to hold us to account. Uh, Alex, I think it's, it's a question of decision-making about where you allocate your resources. I, don't, I didn't hear anybody in any newsroom complain they couldn't get the budget to cover the royal wedding. Um, that's, uh, you know, we all watched Anderson Cooper on CNN you know, run himself ragged, you know, hopping from uh, sort of Egypt to Libya to the royal wedding to you know, uh, tornado-stricken parts of the, you know, the middle of America. And you often wonder whether you know, CNN has more than one, you know, one person left with the travel budget. But, um, <laughs> you know, so I, it's a flippant example, you know, the, and actually it's not a simple one because, you know, there was a massive audience at the Royal Wedding and, you know, all of our readers kind of wanted to read about it. And even the FT? Like one piece about really? it. Um, so, um, <laughs> I, think I, too, <laughs> I think you shouldn't underestimate the, um, the power of the crowd in this respect in so far as... Um, the obsession of people who are specifically interested in one tiny niche subject, you know, I don't know if it's the guy who's an expert on old typewriters who knew that the Bush war record document with the Dan Rather story couldn't possibly have been made in the 1970s and worried away at it like a bone because he just was obsessed. Those kind of people exist in their millions around the world. And believe me, right now the world does not seem to have this reverence for power that existed two or three decades ago. As a result, you have got millions of crowdsourced quasi-journalists all helping you put the people in power's feet to the fire. And I think they do it pretty effectively. I mean, and they bring things yeah. to, the, to light, which maybe they don't have the resources to research and get the facts on. But we get hundreds of tips a month. Not all of them do we write stories about. When we do, it becomes something often then picked up by the newspapers because they decide that there's something more to it than what we've reported already, and they go and do more extensive analysis. But this is coming from the public. And there's always somebody out there who's an expert. What? I think you need the ecology where everybody has the power to have a voice and have a passion about something and to not give up until they've got answers. FOIA is our most valuable weapon in our arsenal. And in fact, there's a story today about Roger Ailes and, John, uh, and Christie trying to resist a FOIA request we just put in because Roger Ailes was um, uh, apparently an advisor to Christie. And now, the head of a news organization shouldn't be advising a potential political candidate in that way without there being more transparency. So we asked to find out about the records of their meetings. And they said, oh no, under executive privilege, they wouldn't give it to us. Well, I've had three calls today from um, human rights and other lawyers who said, we'll help for free if you want to go to court to resist this re refusal of the FOIA request. So you know, this is a, an interesting thing. One of my guys thought, there's something going on here. I want to know more. And then suddenly you get this sort of feedback mechanism with a bunch of people who are very, very interested in something very important. And that's how the ecology works. And I think you can't belittle the value of people who aren't journalists to actually help that conversation move forward. If I, if I can add a very short point to that, I think the other, which I very much agree um, with you, Gabby, on that. I think the other thing is we're moving to a world of partnerships increasingly where big news organizations, mm -hmm. you realize they can't do everything in-house, exactly. but there are, there's this ecology of you know, local specialists, you know, like the local in Brooklyn, of 
outfits, investigative outfits like ProPublica in the US, you know, great journalism schools doing amazing work. You know, and I think increasingly news desks, news editors, news, news organizations are having to work out how they form alliances either over the long term or for individual pieces of reporting where they may not have the, the expertise in old typewriters or uh, you know, how to get through a particular database, but they know the person who does. Okay. Just, very, just very, 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 very quickly, because everybody... Let, let, let me make... Can we just... Can we just... Because okay. it's, 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 it's a collaboration. I wanted to make a point. We yeah, okay. need them as much as they need us. I wanted so, to make a point also, the last thing. Also, also uh, Matt back has been so patient. It's so... Sorry. Josh Harlan. Um, question about uh, journalism and uh, intellectual curiosity. Um, what, uh, what grade would you give the media... Uh, for dealing with stories with very high levels of complexity. Uh, when you take something like uh, the financial panic of 2008, uh, when the Supreme Court comes out with a decision, uh, when there are certain innovations in life sciences or information technology, these may not be obscure uh, issues which are only of interest to specialists, but they may be extremely complicated. They may be very difficult for non-specialists to understand. How, uh, how would you grade the media in dealing with these kinds of stories? And, uh, and, and does journalistic curiosity play a role in responding to them? I think that's, that's, that's a very, very key issue. I think that the problem is that the more media we have, the less nuance we get. I think that's the whole issue right there. Um, the rush, the rush to be out there, whether it's first, second, third, or four thousandth on the web with your coverage of something, means that people aren't taking the time to actually find out the nuance. And I would give the media a terrible grade, terrible grade on the, on the way they covered the financial rate. I still don't understand half of it, except I understand things when I actually talk to people in the business world, not from the media. And I think that's a real, real problem. That's what I started out saying earlier today. It's deleterious, you know, this, um, this flattening of, uh, of the appreciation of what we call journalism. There, there are spikes that are great journalists, and they help capture the nuance. The nuance serves us as a public. We are served by nuance. But what would it say? Would anyone disagree with Bob that the media deserves a terrible grade for co complex reporting? It Not hasn't all been complex. any different for decades, though, maybe even... In oh, no, no, I disagree, disagree. This gentleman before asked about Watergate. I think Watergate was perfect example of the press doing exactly the right job. Plenty of nuance, and they got the facts right. But it but took it a long time. It took six it, months, you know. But it, but it was a very... It was very, It was actually, at one level, an incredibly simple story, which now you can... Oh, get I don't think it was so just simple. Just by illegally hacking into somebody's mobile phone, you could now kind of, you know, disclose yeah. uh, what was, yeah, what was the, the, the core. I, I don't agree with that. I really don't agree with that. I think it was an incredibly complex story, incredible, and it, it involved bringing down the most powerful man on the earth. No, no, I mean, the effects of it were mm. absolutely, but, but, but in some ways the sort of the, the journalism is not the same as, as, for instance, the journalism required to spend time with those, ver those very complex... Oh, in that case, it was High-impact, high-impact, stories yeah. are incredibly difficult to report, aren't they? Just yeah, I, they I'm are. not sure I agree with this notion uh, completely. Uh, even though I, I'm out of uh, the business now, I still admire greatly the journalists who are prepared to put uh, their lives on the line mm -hmm. to report uh, from, uh, from Libya, from Syria, or wherever it may be, uh, and to marshal the facts, not just opinion, but to marshal the facts. That still is, is, is crucial. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I, I really don't... Uh, yes, of course, uh, Watergate was, uh, was a watershed, mm -hmm. but, uh, it, but there have been plenty of examples since then of, of uh, journalists who've worked hard as, as teams, 
uh, the, the the Sunday Times in 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 the UK, famously over many years, including on thalidomide, for example. Mm -hmm. Really detailed, uh, conscientious uh, reporting, and I think that continues. It's just in different forms. And in a way, it's a very simple. Um, you know, foundation of journalism to just explain stuff, uh, you know, with every piece. And, you know, understanding tribal politics in Libya or what Facebook's business model is really going to be in five years is equally complicated, I would say. Um, but, you know, it's incumbent on all of us to try and explain that. And I think, you know, we may be losing as we move from this sort of mass media age to a more individual and, and sort of uh, siloed age, the sense that you have to explain uh, stuff for a, a broad swathe of people who may be experts in one field, but they're not in, you know, Libyan tribes. Um, so I, I think that is still a, a daily challenge. Okay. Um. I wanted to ask about the likely effect on the future of news of the ownership factor. The whole question of large news organisations, whatever the platforms, but news organisations, news organisations at significant scale. Who owned them? Um, because there have been very rapid changes in ownerships, which in turn have meant very rapid changes in cultures, increasingly managerial cultures in, uh, in news arenas. And what that might be the impact of that over time, on, let's take a, a, a reason, reasonable index, which would be the well-informedness of the American electorate over the next 10 years. What is going to be the impact of ownership of news organisations, the culture of those people, and intentionality? That's, that, that's a whole... Say, because I've had, the, the, because I've had the, the woman in the white suits going like that. Um, <laughs> Randall, Randall and Hopkins. Uh, and because there are drinks... Great question. Um, because there are drinks, it's a great question, but it might but be one... That, but it's, it's like, I'm sorry, this is journalism. This is journalism as it was worse, PC. You just get the killer question and, you know, we have to go and have a drink. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so I, at this point, I, I, I just want to, um, I just want to thank uh, the panel and indeed the audience on a great collaboration.